0: Well, God, thanks for this inspiring story from the Gospel of John. we pray that um, the same revelation that Thomas had, we will have. Amen. Melbourne is a great city of beauty. Um, it is the comfortable life. It is amazing uh, nature, beaches, trees, forests, great um, surroundings, buildings, architecture. The rest of the world is envious of us. We often get ranked as the highest, best place to live. Easiest place, most comfortable place. We love our long weekends here. Uh, It's the bane of every minister. The numbers drop every long weekend in Melbourne. Ooh, because everyone goes away. We're a society of relaxation. We love our festivals. Are we still in the comedy festival? I think we still are. And then there'll be another one. And another one, non-stop in Melbourne, we surround ourselves with beauty. Also, this is the end of the spiritual era, where the gods, the idols of the last few thousand years, have started to be lost in time. They're fading away in the sunset. They're not quite lost, they're they're almost lost, um, these ancient gods and idols. It's like they're still lingering and they still haunt us. Every now and again, even the most hardened skeptics in this amazing city of Melbourne, even the most hardened atheists and agnostics feel a bit haunted by the possibility of their being a God. They're tempted by the transcendent. They're still attracted to the spiritual. But also, for those people who are of faith, people who call themselves, for example, Christians, um, just to use that example, belief doesn't necessarily come all that easy. Genuine faith is a huge t- challenge. For people who have committed to a faith in Jesus those people have an inescapable awareness of all the other arguments that go against Christianity. So we don't really live in a city either made of atheists or fundamentalists. Rather, most people in Melbourne, in Australia, you could even say, live in this kind of in-between land, where that where. You either have this kind of agnosticism that's haunted by the belief in some kind of God or a belief in some kind of God that's haunted by agnosticism. Uh, For Christians, the author James K.A. Smith, he writes, We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now, he says. If you're sitting here this morning and you really identify with what I'm saying, then you're not that unusual. But let me go further. If you're sitting here this morning and your Christian faith is feeling pretty shaky, if you're feeling worried about life and you don't feel your faith is helping you out, then listen up. Our story is from John 20 uh, verses 24 to 31, and it's here to encourage you to help you to reset. And I pray this morning for those of you who are agnostics, who are haunted by maybe the belief in God, that you'll have a clarity and come to faith. And I pray for you who are, that those of you who are Christians, who are haunted by agnosticism, that you'll also come to a clarity of faith in Jesus. That's what this story does in Thomas. The context of it is... Uh, it starts on the first night of Easter, uh, and Jesus has just appeared to the, the, the apostles, 10 of them in fact, and uh, one of them, Thomas, wasn't there for that, and it's a great appearance. He appears in the room, um, and uh, he also commissions them for ministry, breathes on them, and then where we begin, um, they're telling Thomas, oh, you missed out, the ultimate kind of fear of missing out situation, you know. Um, you weren't here we saw the resurrected Jesus and uh, Thomas doesn't believe and that's where we sort of begin uh, we that there also the story then crosses over to a week later and I'll, I'll mention that later when we, when we jump forward a week we don't know much about this Thomas who missed out and who doubted apart from the fact that his name is Didymus and it means twin I don't know if you've ever known a twin anyone a twin in this room that's good. I can see. Oh, you've got one. Tw- oh, you got twins. Yeah, there you go. Well, twins are interesting characters. They are often um, can be all kinds of different personalities, but very, very can be very serious sometimes as well. Um, and this is the case with Thomas. He's a serious bloke. Uh, in in um, the two other times in the Gospel of John, he's mentioned these really full-on things. For example, in John 11, verse 16, when Lazarus had recently died. The apostles uh, don't want to go back to Judea where some of the Jews had attempted to stone Jesus. And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. Whoa. And the other time is in chapter 14, verse 5. They're kind of two examples. Um, If you looked it up, you'll see it's kind of quite serious. So this third encounter with Thomas is just as serious. Only it is dramatically more profound because without giving away too much, the insight that Thomas gets is going to be really the climax of this book. So the apostles tell Thomas, who missed out the twin, uh, where was he? Probably with the other guy, or the other twin. <laughs> they, he, he missed out on seeing the resurrected Lord. And maybe Thomas is still in shock, but he just doesn't believe what they're saying. Maybe they saw a ghost. Maybe they're just deluded. Maybe they had... Too much communion wine. They'd only had a week to practice communion. Maybe they went a bit over the top, you know, and I think they are seeing things. So Thomas says in verse 25, shaking his head, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And and the word here for put is very strong. It's unless I really put it in there. When I shove it in there, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus had previously had a go at the people who demanded signs and wonders. But here, Thomas, he wants hard evidence. Now, what the writer of the Gospel of John is doing here is he's sort of subtly preparing the ground to kind of critique uh, a breakaway movement called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were kind of not that, um, well, that well, they weren't, they weren't, didn't believe in the true gospel for a start. But one of the big things was they didn't really believe that Jesus was really flesh because they didn't trust flesh. They thought flesh was sinful. And especially the resurrected Jesus, that that wasn't really a bodily resurrection. So uh, what is about to be shown to this or presented as a critique to this movement is that um, what we shall see is a truly resurrected body of Jesus. So is Thomas here a flaky sceptic? In history, he's been um, unfortunately given the nickname Doubting Thomas, which is so unfortunate, isn't it, that you just do one thing and then suddenly for thousands of years later, you get given this nickname. Is he really this flaky sceptic? Is his request so unreasonable? And the answer is clearly no. It's not an unreasonable request. Like if it was you, you were one of the um, apostles, the 12 and uh, this had been told to you, you would not believe it, I don't think. I mean, you might. I guess John John himself saw the empty tomb and he believed, but I reckon most people would say, what? People don't rise from the dead. So his request is fair enough. He is a believer in one sense. He's been around with Jesus since his baptism, and he's seen um, Jesus perform miracles and heard the teaching and been there sort of you know, participating in the ministry of Jesus. But uh, he needs something more here. He needs an apostolic treatment. That's what he needs. What do I mean by that? The other 10 apostles had had um, a very uh, significant encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And Thomas needed that as well if he was to go on and be, uh, had that kind of apostolic ministry as a witness of the resurrection. Because that's what it was all, founded on their ministry. They, they went out and they said to people, we are presenting to you the good news about Jesus who rose from the dead. We know it because we saw him. We spoke to him. We had meals with him. And that's the powerful message. And for Thomas to be able to do that, he has to also have that encounter. In Acts 1, when the 11 go and replace Judas, they took this Uh, role that they've got as witnesses to the resurrection very seriously. I'll just read you what they say to themselves. This is verse 21 of Acts 1. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And when Paul takes up his ministry as an apostle, he too can do this because he's witnessed the resurrected Jesus who appeared to him miraculously on the road to Damascus. And we're going to look at that next week. So John needs to witness Jesus' resurrection properly. Uh, so Thomas needs sorry, needs to witness Jesus' resurrection properly. And John's showing us this. Or well, he can't go on and fully participate in confidence in his ministry as an apostle who has witnessed the resurrection so for that first week after Easter, he's going on the message of the apostles and not really believing it yet. He's relating to them like we relate to the apostles. We, if you're a Christian, believe in the resurrection because of what the apostles have said to us via the Bible. So a week has gone by and it was again Sunday evening and they're meeting in the upper room. Maybe Sunday church has started as a tradition by now, who knows. But they're gathering again, uh, and even though the doors were locked, Jesus still appeared again, as he had the week earlier, as he did on the road to Emmaus, just appears. And he greeted them with, Peace be with you, the familiar greeting. While Jesus wasn't in the room the week earlier, uh, when the disciples, the other apostles were talking to him and telling him what they'd seen, Jesus nevertheless knew what Thomas's demands were. Because this is his supernatural knowledge. He is the resurrected Jesus who knows what people want. Even if he's not in the room with them. This is the kind of being we're dealing with here. Who knows us intimately. So Jesus deals with his questions up front and he says, carry out your test. In so many words. And he also says, stop being faithless, but but Believe. Stop being faithless. Be a believer. And this encounter, when Jesus appears in front of Thomas, that's enough for Thomas. He doesn't go on and stick his finger. And even though the paintings often show that, that's actually not what the passage says. He just goes, whoa, this is real. Now, in the start of this gospel, the gospel of John in chapter 1, John had written about the word who was God. The word who was made flesh. The word who lived among them. John talked about seeing his glory. And here in chapter 20, this is, like the, this is the official ending of John. John. Chapter 21 is like an appendix, kind of the, the tying together of threads at the end. And in this proper ending, Thomas makes the most dramatic statement about Jesus. a statement which brings the gospel to a climax. For the first time, no one had ever said this. He reveals a bold understanding who, of who Jesus really is. And he says, my Lord and my God. This, no one had said that before. Thomas, who's labelled the doubter, actually should be labelled the one who got it. Thomas, the one who got it. Maybe Mary could kind of do this for Thomas. We'll change it, make a Wikipedia page. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus had been on trial. Who is this man? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Messiah? Who is he? Thomas gives us the answer. He is Lord. He is God. Thomas doesn't need to put his finger in. Being in his presence was enough. Thomas understood that normally people don't rise from the dead. Men don't normally rise from the dead like this. And that's why he gives Jesus the same title that God of Yahweh gets... In the Old Testament, God and Lord put together. Uh, the Melbourne Bible, biblical scholar, who's not alive anymore, Leon Morris, he said, The one who was now so obviously alive, although he had died, could be addressed in the language of adoring worship. See, what Thomas says is what it means to be a Christian. There is content to our faith, it's propositional. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. It's also personal. He's my Lord. He's my God. Jesus is not just a nice person. He's not just your boyfriend. He's not just a magic genie who appears out of nowhere to help you out when you can't get a car park. He's the most important person in the world. He's the son of God. And Thomas got it in one. But then notice Jesus gives him a gentle rebuke. Now, you think after the guy gets the main point of the whole thing, you wouldn't do that. But listen to what he says. Verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. A Gentle rebuke. Because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me, yet believe. And Jesus is pointing forward to a time when the only way people are going to believe in Jesus is through uh, believing in his resurrection but not having that amazing privilege of seeing the the physically resurrected Jesus. They're not going to be able to sit down and have a meal with him or even stick their hand in his side. And he's pointing to the ministry that the apostles are going to be doing when Jesus ascends. They're going to be going around persuading people of this resurrection. And in the future, people will believe based on the testimony of the apostles. And as a result, they will be blessed. Interestingly, though, and I'll throw this out. It's a bit of a fun one. It's true, I think. Um, Calvin goes further. And he says, We now behold Christ in the gospel in the same manner as if he visibly stood before us. I Calvin's saying when we read the testimony of the apostles in the Bible we witness that resurrected Jesus. So as Paul says to the Galatians before your very eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Galatians 3 verse 1 and listen to what the apostle Peter says to the persecuted Christians in uh, 1 Peter 1 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him and even though you do not see him now You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Being a Christian, we don't need to see the physically resurrected Jesus anymore to believe. Because we have the testimony of the apostles. And God works powerfully through that testimony in the Bible in our hearts and witnesses to us. Now, I've got two applications that I want to present to us about this passage and why it's important, especially regarding the challenge that I presented at the start. First of all, the first application is this. The gospel is about Jesus' death and resurrection. Notice how much the apostles needed the uh, historicity of the resurrection. What Jesus said wasn't enough. It's what he did that mattered the most. So for both the people of faith who are haunted by doubt and the people of doubt who are haunted by faith in this world today, these kind of people so often want to reduce Jesus to what he said, to his teaching. They say, well, we don't really know. We don't really believe in the resurrection anymore. I mean, come on. And... You know, the miracles. But, you know, what he teaches, that stuff is amazing, isn't it? I love Jesus. I mean, you know, even Ricky Gervais will say, Jesus' teaching is so good. Uh, You know, he's teaching about love and peace and justice. But the Gospel of John says, that's wrong. The Gospel is not about how to live. It's about what Jesus has done. The Apostle Paul says, if you get rid of the resurrection, we may as well pack up our bags, go home, and have a coffee because the whole thing goes out the window. Jesus is merely a profound teacher from 2,000 years ago who walked around in sandals and said some really profound things, kind of on the same level as you know some of the great authors, maybe Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or something. No, is at that level? If that's what you're reducing him to. But what Paul says, unfortunately, you're still in your sins. Nobody's been forgiven. Nobody's going to go and live with God in eternity, if that's the case. So our temptation is middle class, uh, educated, inner north people who are into justice, who are into thinking. We want to embrace, love one another. But on its own, that's empty. The poor, for example, don't respond to that kind of gospel. You know, the church didn't grow exponentially in the first century because the apostles walked around saying love one another everyone they came flo- flocking to the church because the apostles went around saying we're representing Jesus who rose from the dead, we saw him and there are 500 other people who did too you can check with them he really is the Messiah they're saying your past, your present, your future has been changed if you have faith in him This is the true message of the gospel. This is the kind of faith that gives life in our neighbourhood. The Jesus who invites us to personally engage with him. The Jesus who demands, uh, who knows our demands and knows our requests. He's the Jesus who died and rose again so that we can be in a relationship with God. So that's the first application. Believe in a gospel That is about Jesus' death and resurrection. Secondly, I want to talk about people who are too smart to believe. There's a type of person who I meet all the time who are what I call too smart to believe. They're not actually too smart to believe, but they sort of think that without saying it out loud. They think they have more insight than the average person. They think religious faith is for weak people. And that they are intellectually strong enough to be a non-believer. The worst kind of too smart to believe people are the ones who have grown up in the church, worked out that um, actually they're smarter than all their Christian friends. And so they feel like they want to move on. But what the story of Thomas and Jesus together, what that story does is that it challenges those who think that they are too smart to believe. Firstly, it shows that Christian faith allows for questioning. It invites rational engagement. The 13th century Catholic scholar Thomas Aquinas presents a kind of Christianity that is based on question after question after question. He shows that authentic Christian faith is not what you'd say infrarational. It's not lower than reason. But it is in fact supra rational. Sorry about the jargon. By this, he means that after engaging with Christianity with all of our questions and research, there comes a point where a surrendering needs to occur to a reality that uh, the reality of Jesus. You can ask questions, you can inquire, and that will be a fruitful process, but ultimately, faith requires a surrendering. It's a bit like falling in love. So, you meet someone that catches your eye, for example. And you think that they're pretty hot. And so you Google them, creepy. And you Facebook stalk them. And you look at their comments and their interests and their likes. You might even talk to a few of their friends. And you do all your research. And then you nervously send them text message, do you want to go for coffee after church? Or something like that. And so they reply, yes, okay. And so you get together for coffee. And then you really don't know much about them until you start speaking to them, correct? And then they speak to you and the conversation develops. Then you have to make a decision if this relationship is to go anywhere. You have to stop your research project and then you have to become a bit vulnerable and surrender to them to a point. If this is going to turn into anything, if this is going to turn into love, You can't just keep uh, deconstructing the other person and and, um, taking notes. You have to surrender on the far side of reason. Because what you're doing is, if all you're you're ever doing is analysing and deconstructing them, you're actually aggressively trying to control them. Now, Thomas could have kept asking questions. He could have said, when Jesus appeared... No, that's not enough. Come on. And then he could have sat him down and asked him questions. He could have grilled him, maybe maybe I'm a twin, maybe you're the Jesus twin. We didn't know about him, but there he, you know, he could have done all kinds of things like that. But instead, he surrendered on the far side of reason. He knew enough information. It's not like it's his blind faith, but he still surrendered. So sure ask yourself questions. Ask God questions. Ask the Bible questions. Ask other Christians questions. Keep asking questions, but stop trying to control the situation with God. Now, if you think of yourself as a bit of a, a liberal person and a Christian, then the best quality you have in this kind of conversation is that you have an open mind, which is humble and ready to turn. Surely that's what it means to be. A liberal person. But don't make the mistake of thinking the only way you can turn is away from God. That's what some liberal people think. The only right move for me is away from God. Perhaps the truly open minded thing for you to do is to turn to Jesus and say, My Lord and my God. If you want to truly know someone or something, you have to take a risk. The kind of deep knowledge that we're talking about here begins with trust. Jesus is inviting you to trust in him. You can't have this kind of knowing without personal commitment. You need to believe to really know God. Take a step of faith. The great Christian missionary and thinker, Leslie Newbigin writes, Christian discipleship is not a two-stage affair in which a concept of truth is first formulated and is then translated into a program for action, it is a single action of faith and obedience to a living person, the response to a personal calling. You're going to eventually need to drop your conditions, just as Thomas had to drop his conditions. The problem is, if you hold on to your conditions, they will be your saviour. But your conditions won't be an effective saviour. Your intellect, for example, will never die for you. Your intellect won't forgive your sins. Your intellect won't give you eternal life. If you want to be truly blessed, then do one better than Thomas and trust in the witness of the apostles that you get in the New Testament. And the last two verses from the passage we read said, basically, Jesus did heaps of other amazing things. But John chose a selection of them with a very clear purpose. And that is to persuade us, the readers and the listeners to this gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing that you may have life in his name, true life. If you have a strong sense that you are immersed in a haunted secular world, where your agnosticism is haunted by an awareness of the existence of God, maybe he's there, or if your faith is haunted by one more question of doubt, then surrender yourself to Jesus. Believe the apostle's teaching. Accept him as your Lord and God. Let's pray. Lord, just like you know Thomas's questions, his demands, you know our questions and our demands. And pray that you can um, uh, help us, give us the faith we need. We pray for all of us who have hardened hearts, perhaps it has grown over time, if we're, if we're believers who carry around a lot of doubt, that you can help us to process that doubt, to externalise, to talk about it, to ask questions but also to to come before you in humility. And also we pray for all of us who are agnostics, perhaps even atheists, but are haunted by this sense that there could be something more, that we find that something more in the resurrected Jesus. Amen.